For another perspective on adjuvant therapy of lung cancer, I visited with Dr. Joan Schiller, who reviewed many of the concepts discussed by Dr. Wakeley, but from another perspective. To begin, Dr. Schiller commented on how patients end up in her office for a consultation to consider adjuvant treatment. Usually, they come from either a pathologist or an interventional radiologist who's done a biopsy. And someone has told the patient that they have cancer and have referred them to me. And the patient usually comes in pretty scared, not knowing what's going to happen. And so in the adjuvant situation, are you usually seeing them after the surgery? After the surgery, yes. Right. So at that point, they've had the surgery and they've come to you. Can you talk a little bit about what adjuvant therapy is, what the idea is behind it? Although hopefully the thoracic surgeon really did get it all, so to speak. Thoracic surgeon's not perfect, and there's always a chance that a couple of cancer cells may have been left behind, either at the site of the original tumor or may have gotten into the bloodstream even before the operation and gone someplace else. So there's a chance that there might be microscopic amounts of cancer somewhere in your body that we just don't have any good enough tests to see. And so for that reason, because we know that based upon the size of your tumor that there is a chance this cancer will come back, there's a chance that that has in fact happened to you, that we would recommend giving some additional form of systemic therapy. And we would suggest systemic therapy, meaning whole body therapy, because the cancer cells may have gone essentially anywhere in your body. Now, they may not have. You may be cured just sitting there. That may never have happened, but unfortunately, none of our tests are good enough for us to be able to say, this person's got residual cancer cells, and that person does not. So what about the possibility of just waiting and seeing whether the cancer comes back and then just treat it at that point? That certainly is a possibility. However, once lung cancer comes back, it's rarely curable. Not 100% of the time, but usually it comes back kind of in spades, so to speak, and is usually not resectable and not curable. And if by taking this additional chemotherapy, does that mean that pretty much it's not going to come back, period? Unfortunately, no. Realistically, there's always the possibility that just sitting there, you don't have any micrometastases and you don't really need this therapy. And realistically, there is the possibility that you do have micrometastases, but they are not all killed by the chemotherapy and that the cancer will come back regardless. Now, having said all that, we do know from studies, however, that as a group, Patients with lung cancer who have this additional therapy are more likely to live longer than those who have not. And how do you determine what the actual risk is of the cancer coming back and how much that might drop by taking the chemo? So the risk of it coming back is based upon the size of the tumor. Obviously, the larger the size, the more chance it has had to grow and to kind of sit around and to possibly still be there. And the other big risk factor that we look at is whether or not any lymph nodes are involved, because cancer will often spread through the lymph nodes to elsewhere in the body. So if lymph nodes are involved, what that may mean, although we don't know for sure, but it may mean that they actually escaped out of those lymph nodes and have also gone someplace else. Can you talk a little bit about the possible types of chemotherapy that could be used in this situation and that are used? 
Typically, we use what we would call doublet chemotherapy, meaning chemotherapy consisting of two drugs. Very typically, those two drugs are given either once every three weeks or perhaps twice during a three-week period of time. And very typically, they're given for a total of four cycles. Typically, one of those drugs includes a drug called cisplatin. The second drug is more negotiable, so to speak, that we have several choices from which to choose. And which to choose depends in part upon logistical issues and side effect issues, perhaps more so than real medical issues. Now, you mentioned the cisplatinum, but there's also another drug, carboplatin. Is that ever used? And what's the difference? Cisplatinum was discovered kind of before carboplatin. Carboplatin is a kissing cousin to cisplatin and was developed because it had a different set of side effects. Nonetheless, most clinical studies, most but not all, have suggested that cisplatinum is the more powerful of the two drugs, and thus a patient is perhaps more likely to be cured with cisplatin than with carboplatin. Now, what are the potential problems that you can get into with cisplatin? In terms of side effects of therapy, they are pretty much what most people have heard about in terms of chemotherapy. Some drugs will, in fact, give total hair loss. Others will not. The good news is is that with the better antiemetics, the better anti-nausea drugs we have these days, nausea and vomiting, which everyone really used to fear with chemotherapy in the past, is nowhere near the problems that it used to be. It used to be a major problem. Now, thankfully, for most patients, it is not. Other side effects to chemotherapy in general include the fact that chemotherapy will also reduce someone's blood counts. And in particular, we worry about the white blood cell count because that's what fights off infections. And if the white cell count goes down too low for too long, that means that the patient is at an increased risk for developing an infection. And that infection could potentially be a severe one, such as a pneumonia, that lands one into the hospital. Now, that's rare, but is certainly a potentially serious side effect. In addition to what I've just mentioned, fatigue is a common side effect with cisplatinum and many other types of chemotherapy. Usually it's not real, real bad. It's usually not so bad, for example, that patients are lying at home in bed all day. And if that were the case, we would want to know about it because that's not supposed to happen. Many people are able to continue to work during the chemotherapy. Most people kind of cut back somewhat. They go down to part-time during the chemotherapy. Most people want to come home and take an afternoon nap, for example. But By and large, most people are able to continue their daily activities, and I think that's an important point to make. Other side effects which are very unique to cisplatinum is that it can cause kidney damage, and so for that reason, we have to keep the kidneys very well flushed with lots and lots of fluid. And because we give that fluid intravenously, that's what makes the treatment a long treatment day, because the nurses basically will be pumping you with a lot of fluids to keep on flushing the cisplatinum out of your system. Two other side effects which are relatively unique to cisplatin include ringing in the ears. For most people, that's not a problem, particularly since they're only going to get four doses of the cisplatin. And then another side of cisplatin can be some numbness and tingling in the hands and feet. 
And again, for most people, that's not a major problem with just four cycles of cisplatin, although both of those are something we would want to watch and follow because both of those are potentially irreversible. Almost everything else that we've talked about, the hair loss, the fatigue, nausea, blood counts, are reversible and go back to normal once the cisplatinum is completed or chemotherapy is completed, but the ringing in the ears and the tingling of the hands and feet are not. What about the potential for hearing loss? So if one continues to give the cisplatin despite the ringing in the ears, you're right. The next sequela of that could be hearing loss, and again, it could be irreversible. Do you actually test people, for, or you just ask them whether there's a problem? You just ask them. And for most patients, this comes on very insidiously. And for most patients, it requires many cycles of cisplatin for this to be a problem, not just four. But it comes on so slowly that, in fact, if it does look like it's going to become a problem, you can reduce the doses. And you mentioned four doses here. So the chemotherapy in this situation is just for a short term, then it stopped. That's right. It's usually for about 12 weeks, usually four, three-week cycles. And how long does it take once the chemotherapy stopped for people to kind of feel themselves again, have their hair grow back, sort of go back to where they were? It usually starts maybe about four weeks after the chemotherapy. It takes a little bit. It takes a couple of weeks for the fatigue, for example, to kind of go away. Hair comes back slowly, unfortunately. It only grows about half an inch a month, so that will take a while. Hair loss is not usually a major problem with cisplatin. It's often the other drug that causes it. And some of the other drugs that we typically combine with cisplatinum don't necessarily cause it at all. So hair loss is often not a major problem with this particular combination of drugs. So maybe you can go through the other drugs that are then combined with cisplatin. So for this type of treatment, the other drugs would include a drug called gemcitabine, which is a commonly used chemotherapy drug. These days we use it more for squamous cell carcinoma rather than adenocarcinoma. And when you say squamous and adeno, what do you mean? Squamous cell carcinoma and adenocarcinoma are different subtypes of non-small cell lung cancer. Gemcitabine has got all pretty much the same effects that I just mentioned, which is what most chemotherapy does in terms of the hair loss, possibilities of nausea and fatigue, and the drop in the blood counts. Similarly, with another drug which is commonly used in this combination, and that is a drug called vinarelbine. The trade name is navalbine. Navalbean or vinarelbine is a little bit unique in that it is given twice during a three-week period of time, which is also the same with gemcitabine. Those are both given twice during that three-week period. And then another drug which is commonly used is a drug called taxotere. This one is only given once during the three-week period of time, but again has many of the same side effects. And then most recently, a fourth drug has been added as a possibility, and the name of that fourth drug is called Pemetrexed, or Limta. And this is a drug which is more commonly used for the non-squamous cell type of lung cancer, such as adenocarcinoma. A Limta is given once every three weeks, and it has the advantage of causing relatively little hair loss. What are some of the things that you tell patients to contact you or your nurse about? Certainly nausea. As I mentioned before, nausea should be very well controlled. 
And one of the problems with nausea, though, is that if somebody experiences, they often don't feel like eating or drinking, so they get a bit dehydrated, and so they feel even less like eating or drinking, and they get more dehydrated, and it quickly becomes a vicious circle. So we want to break that downhill spiral as quickly as we can. So if someone is having nausea to the point where they're not really drinking very well, we would ask them to give us a call. We don't care so much about the eating part, but they have to be able to continue to drink. The other thing that we would want a call about would be fevers, because as I mentioned, most chemotherapy does reduce the white blood cell count, and a fever would suggest that, in fact, the patient has an infection of some sort going on. And if the white cell count is way down, that could blossom into a potentially very serious infection. So we would want to start antibiotics sooner rather than later. How much of a fever would it take? One degree, two, or what's the... The usual number that we give is greater than 100.5. Do people ever die from receiving chemotherapy? Boy, sure is pretty darn rare, fortunately, very fortunately. But occasionally, a infection can get out of control. And yes, there certainly have been cases where people have died. But thankfully, it is very, very rare. Now, one of the possibilities that a patient could consider in a situation like this would to be part of a research trial. Can you talk a little bit about what kinds of research are done in patients in this situation, how you go about doing it? So obviously, we want to improve how patients do with lung cancer. And the only way to do that is through research. And research typically involves development of new and better drugs. And so typically what we do is learn about those drugs in the laboratory. They get studied in a Petri dish or a flask. And if it looks like they're going to work in a Petri dish or a flask, then we often go on to study them in mice that have cancer, mice with tumors. And if it looks like they work in mice with tumors, then we try it in people. And the first time it goes into people, those studies tend to be called phase one studies. And phase one studies mean that they're just coming out of the laboratory. We don't even necessarily know the correct dose, and we don't even know for sure the side effects in people. We may suspect we do, but we don't know for sure. Once we have identified the correct dose and we're pretty darn comfortable with the side effect profile, then we go into a phase two study. And a phase two study is a study to try to get a feel for how active the drug is or isn't. So those are relatively small studies, anywhere from 20 to maybe 70 patients. And if at the end of that it looks like the drug really does have activity, then we go on to a much larger phase three study. And a phase three study is designed to prove that the drug or drugs are better than the standard therapy. And in order to prove without any doubt whatsoever, one has to do what is called a randomized phase three trial. And what that means is that half the patients get arbitrarily selected to receive the standard therapy, and the other half are randomly selected to receive the new drug or drugs. So a phase three study is a randomized study in which patients will either get the standard treatment or the new treatment. And that decision is not based upon any medical or scientific factors. It's truly random. A big computer someplace does the computer equivalent of tossing a coin. 
And based upon the computer equivalent of tossing a coin, the patient will get assigned to one or the other. And the reason we do it that way is because otherwise doctors are notorious for being kind of prejudiced. So they might say, for example, oh, this younger patient looks like a great candidate for the experimental drug, but oh, maybe this older patient maybe isn't. And doctors will often bias the trial by putting one sort of patient onto one arm and another sort of patient onto another arm. So for that reason, we let the computer arbitrarily decide. So what are some of the clinical research trials right now that a patient who's about to consider getting adjuvant chemotherapy might be able to go into? Well, there are, the best of my knowledge, a total of three in North America, three possible adjuvant studies. One of those adjuvant studies involves a vaccine. To be a candidate for that study, your doctor has to send your tumor to a central lab And they have to analyze it to see if you're a candidate for this vaccine, and only about a third of all patients are. A second study involves a drug called erlotinib or Tarsiva. And to be eligible for that study, your surgeon has to send your tumor to a central laboratory, and they too have to analyze it and make sure that you qualify. The third study is one which I'm involved with, and it is run by the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group, or ECOG. And it is a study looking at the role of a drug called bevacizumab or Avastin. And bevacizumab or Avastin is a new drug, which is what we call an anti-angiogenic drug. And what that means, Avastin doesn't try to kill the tumor. What it does try to control are the blood vessels growing within the tumor. So it is a way of choking off the blood supply to the tumor. Now, in this particular randomized study that we're involved with, half of the patients get randomized to chemotherapy, the standard of care, and the other half get randomized to chemotherapy plus Avastin. So everybody gets chemotherapy, everyone gets a standard of care. About half the patients will, in addition to that, go on to get Avastin. And what has been seen with Avastin when it's been used before? I guess it's been used in lung cancer in people who've had more advanced disease. What's been seen there in terms of its effect on the tumor and its side effects? Right. So the reason we're testing it in this adjuvant setting is because we have tested it in patients with more advanced disease and have found that with chemotherapy, it can shrink tumors and help patients live longer. It doesn't cure anybody when given in the advanced disease setting, but there now have been two studies in lung cancer which have been done, both of which have shown that if you get chemotherapy plus Avastin, you're more likely to have your tumor shrink, and you are more likely to have it take longer before it starts to grow again. And one of the two studies also showed that you're more likely to live longer if you get chemotherapy plus Avastin. Now, just because that works in patients with more advanced disease doesn't necessarily mean it will work in the adjuvant setting. Obviously, we hope so, we think so, but we have to do the trial to prove it. What are some of the downsides in terms of the side effects or risks of this? So side effects of Avastin can include hypertension. Usually that hypertension is controllable. Your doctor would give you regular high blood pressure pills. 
Other side effects include losing some protein in your urine. Usually not a very serious side effect, usually not one that anybody would notice from a clinical standpoint. That's a laboratory test. In patients with advanced disease, another potentially very serious but rare side effect was that very rarely it could cause bleeding. We think the tumor was disintegrating so fast that it started to bleed, and a couple of patients, not many, but some patients did have serious problems. This is bleeding in the lung itself? Bleeding in the lung, that's right. In this study, however, the tumor has been removed, so we are not expecting to see any problems with bleeding in the lung. It's been stated that bevacizumab or Vastin might be associated with an increase in clots or clots in the legs, heart attacks, et cetera, strokes. It's been kind of tough to tease out how much of a risk that is. What's your take on that? So again, Avastin works on the blood vessels. So anytime something works on the blood vessels, you worry about side effects related to the blood vessels, hence the worry about the hypertension, for example, and also hence a worry about clots. And although everyone was worried about that when Avastin first got developed, more recently, the increase in risk of clots is very minimal. There probably is a slight increase, but it's pretty minimal. What about how people feel when they're receiving the bevacizumab now? They get it not just during the chemotherapy for the 12 weeks, but then it continues out by itself without the chemo for a year how do people feel when they are just receiving the Avastin without the chemo? Usually just fine. Because Avastin targets the blood vessels and not the rest of the cells in the body like chemotherapy does, Avastin does not cause hair loss, does not cause nausea, does not cause fatigue. So when it's given by itself, it's tolerated pretty well. I guess it's an antibody, huh? Right. Avastin is what we call a monoclonal antibody. We all think of antibodies as something that our bodies make in response to an infection. But it turns out that scientists can also make antibodies, but instead of targeting them toward a bacteria or targeting them toward a virus, in this case, they've made them so they will target a blood vessel. The way you describe it in terms of generally not having too much of a negative effect on how people feel, not too high a risk of serious problems... I can imagine one thought would be, well, why not just for the patient just to try taking it, you know, without being in the study? So right now it's not approved in this situation, and because of the expense of the drug, it is probably not likely to get reimbursed in this situation. So the insurance companies wouldn't pay for it? Probably not. I guess the other thing is you never really know whether it's going to help or not or, you know, maybe cause a problem. Well, that's exactly right. And we don't want to make this standard of care until we know for sure, A, it works, and B, it's not going to have a lot of side effects. So what happens if a patient decides they want to go in the trial, and then somewhere along the line, they decide, well, no, I really don't want to be in the trial? They can always stop. There's no penalty whatsoever, so to speak, for stopping. You can stop at any time for whatever reason. This is kind of a difficult question, but I think it's something that's important to ask, which is, is there any financial sort of benefit of a physician putting a patient on the study? Do they derive any financial gain? No, not at all. So for this particular study, the study itself is paid for by the National Cancer Institute. They give it to this large group called ECOG, and the ECOG then gives it to the individual doctors. 
but it doesn't go toward the doctor's salaries at all. What it goes for is the research nurses and the research coordinators. Are there any advantages? I mean, obviously, one advantage to being in a study like this is that if it turns out the patient by computer receives the new treatment, the bevacizumab, and if it turns out that it's beneficial, they benefited sort of ahead of the pack. Are there any other advantages? Are patients followed more carefully if they're in a study, for example? Yes, there have been numerous studies done which have shown that even if patients get randomized to the control arm and not the new experimental arm, they tend to do better. And the reason they tend to do better is because they are being so closely followed. They've got a team of doctors and research nurses and research coordinators who are following them very carefully to make sure that they're being conducted as per the study. So yes, even if you don't get the experimental drug, there is a significant advantage. Can you talk a little bit about the systems that are in place to try to protect patients who are involved in clinical trials? I know there's one thing called the IRB, or Institutional Review Board. What is that, and what are all the other things that are involved in protecting the participants? So I think it's very clear that we want to make sure that a patient knows what they're getting into, and we call that informed consent. And to make very sure that we have informed consent, we have to tell patients not only about the possible good things about the study, but also about the possible risks on the study. And the way to make sure that doctors do that fairly and objectively is by getting a third party in there. And the name of that third party is the IRB, which stands for Institutional Review Board. And this is a hospital committee, which contains individuals from all walks of life, so to speak, physicians, not just oncologists, nurses, patients, regulatory people from all walks of life. And they look at the protocol very carefully, and they look at the consent form very carefully to make sure that patients are being appropriate and fairly told the possible benefits and side effects. The only other thing I would say is if it turns out that you yourself don't benefit from this study in the end, at least you will have benefited other people who are following in your footsteps. I mean, this is the only way that we ever will make progress when it comes to cancer research, particularly lung cancer research. And every drug that we have right now, every drug that we've used has been developed in this time-consuming, cumbersome, uncomfortable way. But nonetheless, it's the only way we have. You mentioned a couple of other trials. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the Radiant trial and not so much the details of it, but just the idea behind it in terms of what they're looking at and a little bit about the drug that they're studying. Sure. So the Radiant trial involves that drug called Erlotinib or Tarceva. And just as Avastin is what we would call a targeted therapy, so is Erlotinib or Tarceva. But instead of targeting the blood vessel like Avastin does, Tarceva targets something else entirely. And what it targets is a particular substance in tumor cells called EGF, epidermal growth factor. And if a patient's tumor has a lot of this EGF, we hypothesize that they are more likely to respond or benefit from Tarceva. So in this particular trial, as I mentioned before, the surgeon sends in the tumor to this central laboratory, and they analyze each patient's tumor to see if they have a lot of this EGF. 
And if they do, then they would be a candidate for the study. If they don't, then presumably they would be unlikely to benefit from Tarsiva because Tarsiva only targets the EGF. And so if they don't, they would not be eligible for the study. Is there any sort of general advice that you give to patients at that point in time, both when they're about to get the chemo, while they get the chemo, and also recovering from the chemo, lifestyle, diet, exercise, anything that you say to them? We generally say to try to live as normal of a life as possible both in terms of exercise, work, play, and eating. In terms of diet, again, to eat as normal and as healthy of a diet as possible, but certainly megavitamins or herbal therapies have not been shown to be helpful and could potentially be harmful. We would encourage patients to get out and do things and go to work if they feel like it, because otherwise just sitting at home can be awfully depressing. The only time they have to be careful is when their blood counts are down and when they should avoid large crowds, such as in a movie theater or a shopping mall. Once the chemotherapy is done, what kind of plan is implemented in terms of following the patient? Well, on our study, 1505, the patients will be continuing to get Avastin, so they'll be continuing to come in every three weeks. If a patient was not on a study, typically their physician would have them come back every two or three months or so and would have them come back with either a chest X-ray or possibly a CAT scan. Now, is there a point in time at which if the cancer hasn't come back that the patient can feel pretty comfortable it's not going to come back? So the magic time point that we use is five years. Typically, if somebody's out five years, we say that they're probably cured of their cancer. Having said that, however, the chances of it coming back are highest within the first year following their cancer and a little bit lower but still high in the second year and lower in the third and so on. I'd like you to reflect a little bit on what you've observed in terms of how people personally deal with this within their families. What's the state of mind that you usually encounter in these patients when you first see them right after the surgery, I guess four or five or six weeks after So after the surgery, they often have mixed feelings. They're very glad that it's out, but they're very worried it might come back. For many people, getting chemotherapy after the surgery, if that's an option, they like that because it means they're doing something to reduce the chances of it coming back yet again. And for many people, they actually have a hard time stopping the chemo because as long as they're on the chemo, they're fighting their cancer. (laughs) But if they stop the chemo, they see it as they're no longer fighting their cancer. And we have people who, you know, get depressed following that. Now, bevacizumab or Avastin has been used in a lot of different cancers, not just lung cancer, also breast cancer, colon cancer, renal cancer, ovarian cancer. But it really hasn't been looked at in a research trial in the earlier adjuvant setting that you're talking about here in this trial in terms of actually having a trial and then seeing the results until very, very recently when the first report of one of the trials that was done, this was in colon cancer, came out. Can you talk a little bit about what they reported and whether you think that's relevant to this study in lung cancer? So you're right. This just came out. This was a trial that was conducted by the NSABP, and it was just reported And so I think we're all still kind of digesting the findings. But basically, it was for patients who had had their colon cancer resected, but were nonetheless still at a risk of it coming back. And so those patients were randomized to either chemotherapy alone or chemotherapy plus Avastin. 
And what they saw was that the patients who received the chemotherapy plus Avastin, it took longer for the cancer to come back. And for a while, it looked as if those patients were doing better than if they had just gotten the chemotherapy. But that was only for a year or two. After a year or two, it didn't look like the Avastin was of any additional benefit. We're not sure why that would be the case, why it only looked like it worked for a year or two. One hypothesis is that it was only given for one year. And one hypothesis is maybe it should have been given for longer than one year, and that by years three, four, and five, the effects kind of wore off. We don't know. Do you think this has any implications for this lung cancer trial? We have talked about that a lot, about based upon the results of this colon cancer trial, does that mean we should give Avastin for more than a year? So the colon cancer trial only gave it for six months after completion of chemo. We're giving it for a whole year after completion of chemo. The question has come up is, should we give it for two years after the completion of chemo? And in the ideal world, that would be good, but we're not in the ideal world, and it means coming back every three weeks for two years. So at this point in time, although we will continue to address and readdress this question, at this point in time, we're not changing the duration of the Avastin.